Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Fullmind production. At Fullmind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I am so eager for you to be joining today's podcast and hear from the incredible speaker whom I admire deeply and have an incredible amount of respect for. We have Dr. Baron Davis, the former superintendent of Richland 2 School District in South Carolina, the current senior advisor at Digital Promise, superintendent in residence at South Carolina, and the CEO for the education consultant firm, Noe Genesis. Welcome, Dr. Davis. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you, Haley, for having me on. It is absolutely my pleasure. And I want to disclose to everybody listening today, uh, one of the consultancies and one of the some of the work that Dr. Davis does is with Full Mind. And so we get to work together now, just as we've have in the past almost five years when you were the superintendent of Richland 2 School District. And I'm just excited to learn about yourself, learn about your experience in school leadership, and also talk to you about the future of education. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. So Dr. Davis, as I shared with you earlier, I always ask the same first question. It's a little bit deep, but I think it helps to get to the heart of the incredible guests that come on the show. So the first question is, how did you come to be the professional and personal version of yourself? So, I mean, clearly this is like an evolutionary process, right? And who I am today, it's not who I was yesterday and, and who I will be tomorrow is not who I am today. And so I, I, I do believe in the existential idea that every living and breathing organism has a desire to be and fulfill the best version of, of itself. To be fully self-actualized is the goal of life. And I think part of that is awareness. So I think one of the things that I've been uniquely for me and unique, when I say uniquely, I mean specifically for me, blessed with is the opportunity or the ability of self-awareness and, and really understanding who I am and how I see myself in the world and how I see myself in general, how I see myself in the world. I started out as a kid uh, growing up in housing projects in Columbia, South Carolina, I was told I wasn't college material. Uh, end up going to school, gaining a bachelor's, an undergraduate degree in sociology, getting a master's degree, PhD, and so on and so forth. And But I've had, of course, over my lifespan, these exodus moments. And these are moments of elevation from one, from one situation to an elevation to a better situation and really fully understanding those things. When I realized what my purpose was in education or my purpose was in life, that's when I really began that process of becoming this really the version of who I am today. And I was on this different, on a different path uh, in education. And I realized that I had a responsibility and obligation to provide opportunity. So I'm just, I'm an I'm a opportunity peddler and pusher for kids. And that's how I got to that. I was a, a kid who I was given opportunities, even growing up in, in, in impoverished communities. My community played a very central role in my development and my preparation in life, they, my community met all of my needs, even though it was a community of individuals who were impoverished, 
we pulled our resources together and took care of everybody within the community. So if I needed a cup of sugar, uh, a, a slice of bread, or I needed to borrow a telephone, whatever it may have been, someone in my neighborhood, in my community, I could go knock on their door and get what I needed in order to meet my needs. And that's really the genesis and really the foundation of who I am, creating community and creating that community and education. But that, that community's responsibility is, is, is opening doors of opportunity for the people of that community. And so for schools, that means my students and that meant my employees, my teachers, my parents, creating opportunity for them to fully self-actualize. That's the, my awareness. And that's who I am. That's how I evolved to that to this point. The title of community peddler, I I've never heard you refer to yourself as that, but it makes so much sense when I think about the incredible work you've done both in Richland too and in other schools and supporting schools around the US. Now, you know, thinking about your childhood and your education, you talked a lot about community, of course, but when it comes to your own schooling, do you have moments that stand out for trans that were transformative for you as a learner? Oh, wow. I, I have tons of moments that stand out for me that were transformative for me as a learner. My my first moment is uh, in fifth grade. Ms. Jackson was my fifth grade teacher. And uh, we back, you know, of course, back then we didn't get letter grades like A, B, C or D. We got a letter and a number. So you get a one and you get a, a S, a E or U or U, S or E, U for unsatisfactory. S for satisfactory, E for uh, exceptional. And then the one went along with it. And Ms. Jackson's class in fifth grade was the first class I got a one E, right? And, and so she was one of the first teachers that really demonstrated efficacy in herself, but more importantly, in, in me and her and her students. So it was the first time I really felt like I was intellectually prepared or I was a I was an intellectual giant like she made me feel like I was extremely brilliant and smart and once I believed and developed the mindset that I could be brilliant and smart I started doing things that brilliant and smart kids do <laughs> and so that was a that was a pivotal point in my educational experience and that happened in fifth grade in Ms. Jackson's class I remember every teacher from kindergarten, every one of my teachers from kindergarten to 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 uh, to to graduation. My second grade teacher, Ms. Walker, introduced me to Greek mythology. I love Greek mythology, uh, just the stories of Greek mythology, but I, I didn't particularly enjoy reading. And so she would give me Greek mythology to read to, so that I would read things that I enjoy. Sounds like something we do now in schools, but back then that wasn't what it was. You had to read what was prescribed for you to read. Now we talk about students' choice and voice and select, right? But this was in the 70s. They wasn't doing that. And But Ms. Walker was the, the she recognized that I love Greek mythology, so she would just find, there's no internet or anything. I mean, she would just find old resources. They were on these like eight by half and 11 uh, parts stock laminated stories of Greek mythology. And I would just devour these stories, devour these stories. And, and that's how I started developing a passion for reading early. So that was pivotal for me, selecting choices and selection, uh, things that I love to read and 
I mean, I have stories from my my chemistry teacher, Ms. Cohen, in the 11th grade, and, and just her tenacity in pushing us to be these these successful, brilliant young black kids growing up in 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 this community. I mean, they never ever gave us an inch or allow any room for self-pity or doubt, like you were expected to perform at my high school by my teachers. And uh, they held us accountable and held our feet to the fire to improve ourselves academically, but also improve our community. So yeah, life, my life was full. I had a great, great educational experience. I, 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 I have no negative things about that I can say about my education. The only negative experience I ever had was my my counselor telling me I wasn't college material. That was the that was the only thing I, I can recall. Everything else was was absolutely wonderful. We're having this conversation, Dr. Davis, during Teacher Appreciation Week, which I've said publicly I have mixed feelings about because teachers should be appreciated year round, but that's neither here nor there. The reason I'm naming that is the question I specifically asked you is what moments stand out to you as most transformative as a learner? I didn't ask you which teachers. But yet everybody goes back to this idea of incredible teachers who shaped their lives, who helped them see themselves for who they were, gave them a different sense of self or, or helped them develop their current sense of self at self. And you did exactly that. And I love that even though the question did not name teachers, your brain goes to teachers because great teachers make such a difference in the lives of children. Yeah. How do you have, you know, I, you know, and then when you think educational and in, in your education, you should hope that central to that experience would be these phenomenal teachers who, you know, and I, I think the greatest gift that teachers give kids and give the student is really not only of course they got to believe in themselves that they are the individuals that's going to make the difference in the student's lives, but they actually believe they're going to impact the student in a positive way. Every teacher has an impact in a student's lives. It, so you either have a positive impact no impact or negative impact, but you're going to have an impact in a student's life one way or another. And I was fortunate to have a bunch of teachers who, who, who saw me for who I could be and not for who I was. And so they work with that version of who I could be. And I had a, almost a sense, it, it's a weird thing. I tell people this all the time. When I was in school, in high school, I, I almost felt like I had a resp- an obligation and a responsibility to be somebody. Like they, it's almost like a guilt trip. It's like I, they made me feel like, look, you got a responsibility to be some, you got to do something with your life. You gotta be somebody. And I fought against that and and and, and pushed back, but eventually those lessons and that's that kind of war, it kind of kind of became a part of who I who I am. And who I became, you know, as a result of that, I've always had a sense of 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 obligation and responsibility to my community. Like you, you, you got to be, you got to do well. You can't just be another person that doesn't succeed in life. And and so that's that that motivated us and 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 pushed me and several of my 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 friends growing up to really to really really push ourselves to to be the best that we could be. Keeping on this theme with teachers for a second, you've hired a lot of teachers in your time. So yeah. what do you look for when you're hiring a teacher that helps that like when you think about these teachers that were transformative for you and that embodied so much of the, this joy and this rigor and this love and this high high standards for your future? 
What do you look for when you're meeting somebody just interviewing for a job that reminds you of the teachers you had or that you want to have within your team? Oh, that's that's easy. I, I, for me, it's, it's always been efficacy. I, it's always been efficacy. Do they believe in themselves? And do they believe they're the ones that's going to make the difference in in any in every student's life? Can they teach any student? Do they believe they can teach any student and capable of teaching any student? Any type of learner, the, 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 the skills can be developed. So I can work with them on skill set. I can do professional development and give them knowledge. I can do put them in situations and let them practice and develop ability. I can't give them the belief that has to be something they have to develop from success and confidence, but they got to have some level of belief that they are going to be, or they are absolutely very best. And it's you know, almost as like a sense of students should be lucky and honored. And, and, and I'm lucky and honored, I should say, as a, as a teacher to have these students in my classroom, because I believe in me. And I believe in them. And if, and if they can believe in me, then we're going to be they're going to be successful. They're going to grow as 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 humans, as people. So those are the types of teachers I look for. And I've, I've been able to select some really, really good teachers trying to assess that in my questions, in my interview questions, because I I, I just needed to know I've, I've been principals in, in schools where. Uh, you know, vast majority of my students were students of poverty and from um, a low wealth communities and students of color. And I needed teachers in those classrooms that believed that they can teach any kid, any student. So that's what I was looking for, efficacy. Am I pressing you too hard if I ask what some of the questions you used were? Because so like, here's here's a real, like we're talking, I talk every day about this teacher shortage in America. Not everybody has a choice about what kind of teachers they can bring in their building because there aren't many options in certain communities, right? In rural communities, there may not be as many teachers physically applying for a role. But let's imagine a world where everybody has a choice. So what are the questions you're asking these candidates to assess for this belief that every child is capable? Questions like, you know, give me your educational philosophy about students and learning, but you can't tell me that all kids can learn. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> you know, already like, yeah, break you, you, can't, you can't tell me that all kids can learn or that you do what's best for kids. Like, cause no one, cause, cause that's going to be challenged, mm. right? The, those two statements you just made are going to be challenged uh, uh, within two months of being in the, in the building. You're going to believe that some kid can't learn and you <laughs> and you're going to have to you're going to be faced with a dilemma where a decision has to be made and it may not be best for 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 kids. It may be best for you or for someone else. So you can't use those as answers. So tell me what your educational philosophy or your beliefs are. And then I would ask them follow up to that would be something around like when was that belief tested? And how did you do? Giving me a time when that belief was tested. And then if this, then if they say it wasn't tested, then, you know, I was like, you know, eventually I would get around to at the end. I was like, okay, so that's really a theory for you. It's not a belief, right? Because your beliefs and your values aren't really yours until they've been tested and you stand on them. Then you believe that and you value it. Other than that, you're just talking about 
I value equity. I okay. read about this thing. I heard yeah, that right? I heard yeah, that yeah. It's say. all philosophical. It's all <laughs> philosophical until it's tested, right? And then when it's tested, you'll be amazed when you face with those things, how many people don't live up to the things that they say they believe or they value. That's not knocking anyone. That's just the reality of it. It's a feel, it's a theory of yours that these things are important. Then when they're tested, they are, you know, then and you've come through, then then they are. So I would ask those types of questions. I would give scenarios. I would put them in teaching situations. You have a student learner who is struggling with the order of operations, but you can't teach the trick, keep change, change. Put them in situations of uh, demonstrate a lesson using the number line. These were mathematics questions. You have a student who struggles with their vision but continuously sits in the back of the classroom. And as you're demonstrating, but the student doesn't want to move, demonstrate how you would teach this lesson. I would give them scenarios to see if they thought inclusively. I would give them lessons, I mean, questions to see, uh, you know, around, um, you know, what are your philosophy or thoughts about calling home and home visits? How frequently should you contact parents? When is the appropriate time to bring a parent into a parent conference? I really wanted to see how they thought around those things, right? Because those are the those are the day-to-day little things that I think make good teachers. Um, you know, what, what time you think is the appropriate time uh, or how much how much prep time should go into a lesson? How do you prepare for a lesson? I want to know their preparation, like what were their preparation strategies? Those aren't typical questions in in interviews for teachers. No, they're yeah. not. And I'm so glad you're sharing them because they're yeah. they're really fantastic. And I know a lot of the listener base of the Learning Can't Wait podcast are school-based personnel, school leaders. And so hearing these types of questions, it's a mind shift. It's a complete mind shift from any questions I've ever been asked. I, I, can, I can think of one occasion where one of my school leaders asked me questions like this. But when I interview, when I moved out, of the city after being in schools for nearly 15 years, I interviewed at a bunch of schools where I live now. And none of the questions were like that. Not a one. I had, I had staff would ask me, you know, why you ask questions like, you know, ask questions like that. I mean, we would, we would incorporate content questions, but um, as well, but I wasn't necessarily trying to assess whether or not you knew content. Right. If I did, I would I would I would ask questions about like the intent of the indicator. What's the difference between a standard and an indicator of learning? How do you develop an assessment that accurately reflects mastery or proficiency of the intent of learning? What happens when 75 you give a test and 75% of your students or 50% like I'll add, what is the threshold for reteaching for you after measuring the intent of the indicator? What's your threshold? And because I would want to hold them to that. So if they said, well, if I teach an intent of the indicator, indicator of learning, and my threshold for reteaching is, you know, 55%, then if we were far apart in our philosophical belief of where you should reteach, we would need to have a conversation about that. But if you can answer the question and you had a number, a percent, and at least I know you thinking about you thought about the fact that it's the response is my responsibility to accurately measure whether or not my students mastered this indicator of learning. 
regularly, would, frequently, often. All right. <laughs> something about it. Have a conversation. Yeah, no. But, you know, it is, it's so, I'm glad we're actually distinguishing here between content and actual practices of instruction and beliefs. And I, and I actually firmly agree with you, though I don't know everyone would, but I firmly agree with you that you can teach skills, you can teach pedagogy, you cannot teach philosophy. Like someone's embedded in their heart belief system may be very challenging to change and while possible, not in the time you need them to step foot in a classroom. If you're hiring in June for an August start, you're not going to be able to fundamentally shift their belief system about children and their capacity, but you will be able to help them better understand formative assessment, how to use formative assessment, when to pull back and start the instruction again because a number of your students have not mastered the content and thus you have failed at providing adequate instruction for them to do the, have mastery. Like, mm-hmm. I agree with you wholeheartedly there. Beliefs, beliefs will impact instructional practices. And, 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 and so... Assessing that is, is, I think, really uh, important because it, 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 it almost boils down to, to who do you believe is entitled to an exceptional educational experience? So when you see your, when you close your eyes and you think about children and students, whether you are the superintendent of schools and whether you're the, 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 the lead custodian of a building. Who do you believe is entitled or who do you believe deserves this exceptional and the term we use in relation to a premier educational experience? And I use the term experience on on purpose because it because school K through 12 is an experience. And, And so if you value the person, you gotta give them the very best experience you can possibly give them. How you see that person, if you see them as a person, you give them reverence. You have a certain level of reverence for this for the student. So I've seen students of affluence. I've seen teachers, administrators and leaders have different ways of dealing with students of affluence than they do with students of poverty. And and, and, and I've seen I've seen it with my own eyes practice consistently. The amount of tension that the, the amount of attention that student gets, the amount of attention, how long it takes them to call a parent back from that student versus a student whose parent might not be as involved. And, and I would always have to help remind people there's a difference between involved and supportive. And I remind my parents of that, too. The parents would say, I'm an involved parent. I'll say, are you a supportive parent? Because involvement can be negative too, but support is always positive. It's always that was always my my second my question when a parent would tell me that I'm an involved parent. I say, are you a supportive parent? Because I need you to support me in this decision. Because this is and this is why. So yeah, it, it has a lot to do with it. I feel like you know. I'm 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 listening to you and I hope that as folks are listening to this conversation there there's like I would I would I would want them to have less like yeah I've seen that too because that means it's pervasive but we also know it's pervasive we know there's a different treatment by many folks in our society of people from low SES backgrounds than from more affluent communities and that is 
part of the systemic inequality that exists in education today. And yet, you calling it out is super powerful. It's powerful to hear someone who has the lived, breathed experience of being a school leader and witnessing that in their own, like in and around them. You know, our conversation today didn't touch on the future at all yet. Um, I, I actually, I'm going to pin that for a separate conversation because I know we'll be having more Dr. Davis, but I want to keep this really focused on the teachers. And, and I'm actually going to take us to our last question for today. I think that this episode as a kind of standalone manifesto about what makes a great teacher and how to find one is really, really important. And I think that the folks that listen to this, especially the school leaders who are entering hiring season right about now or in the midst of hiring season are, are going to take away a lot from the conversation. But now I'm going to ask to like think about the perspective of a teacher. What advice would you give a teacher who's just starting their career? If for teachers just starting their career, um, you know, I would hope that the teacher loves students, just love love students and find the building, the school building, a place that is a rejuvenates their energy and rejuvenates their spirit. And so to select a place to teach that supports that, a place where you can bring your joy to that space, right? So that a place where you know, I would say in one of your questions to your administrators, ask them when they ask you, do you have any questions? Ask them, what are some things you do to create an, a space where my joy can reside? Like, what are things as a leader as a t that you do to create a space where my joy can reside? Because I'm going to bring my joy. I don't want to come to a space every day that kills my joy, but I'm not coming to this space to get joy. I'm bringing it with me. So what are you going to do to help my joy reside in this space, to resonate in this space? That will be, you know, so I would tell teachers, select a space or a school and a school district or a school leader that's going to help or create spaces where your joy can reside. So you can keep that passion burning uh, long and strong because the year is long. The second thing is, the year is long. <laughs> two times, maybe three. Right? The year is long, right? So it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. So prepare for the long year. Your success is in your preparation. The more prepared you are, the better things will go in the classrooms. And prepare for as many so many things as you possibly can prepare. Understand the things you can't control, let them go, control the things you can. And you won't be as frustrated. Third, stay away from negative energy. Don't allow it into your classroom. Don't allow, don't you bring it into the classroom and don't allow anyone else to bring it into your classroom. Protect the energy of your classroom. And, and I don't care how spiritual if, if it's a spiritual thing, do what you need to do. If it's music, if you you know it, I'll tell people, you know when a space is a great space, right? When you walk into a space and you can just feel the energy, the vibe, the, 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 the essence of that. And somebody's fingerprint is all on that space. 
So protect the energy of your classroom space. Your, your students will love it. They will, they, 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 they will love it. And, and, and lastly, just strive to be the best. See, practice self-reflection and see who you want to be. Imagine yourself at your very, very best. See who that person is. And that's the person you're striving to become so that the actual self and the perceived self can fully align um, with, with one another. And that's your continuous learning. Continuous learning is not just about academic and content. It's about just learning in general. You're a first-year teacher. You should not know the things that a 20-year veteran knows. So be the best first-year teacher you can be. Next year, be the best second-year teacher you can be. The third year, the best third-year teacher you can be. And you just keep being the best you can be. And that comes, again, with, with preparation. Know your students. Know what to prepare for. Know what, you know, design your classroom, create, architect a classroom or an ecosystem of learning that everybody can thrive in and create that community. That's that, that, that will make a big difference. Now we are circling full, full back to community, tying up, tying up our conversation in a perfect bow, Dr. Davis. Thank you so much for what I think is like probably one of the most profound conversations I've ever had about what makes a great teacher and how great teachers transform the lives of kids. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the, the episode today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everybody for tuning in. More from Dr. Davis soon, but for today, that's all. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com. 